Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Hello and welcome to Soho Radio's Composers on Film. I'm your host, Gemma Dempsey, and today I'm talking to composer Alex Heffers. Now, you might know Alex's work from any one of his 60-plus films, documentaries and TV series. These include First Grader, for which Alex won an Ivor Novello Award, and working with the same director, Justin Chadwick, on Mandela, Long Walk to Freedom, he garnered a Golden Globe nomination. He's also done the scores to Touching the Void, One Day in September, State of Play, Roots and Dear Frankie, which is where we met. And more recently, he's done the music to the series A Suitable Boy, and that can be heard and seen on the BBC iPlayer, Acorn TV, which is AMC's streaming platform for the USA and Canada, and on Netflix for other territories. The soundtrack is already available digitally, courtesy of Silver Screen Records. Shout out to David Stoner. And it's going to be on CD from November the 27th and vinyl early 2021. Alex has also done the score to Hope Gap, which is a feature film on Amazon Prime at the moment. The EP has come out via Airedale Records earlier in November and stars Annette Benning and Bill Nye. And Ronnie's, which is a film by Oliver Murray about the legendary Ronnie Scott and his fantastic Soho Jazz Club in London, available on BBC TV. So... Alex, thank you so much for waiting patiently in the wings while I gave listeners a bit of a precy of what you've done and what you're currently doing. How are you? I'm good, Gemma. It's nice to speak to you. How are you? I am very well, thank you. Now, are you experiencing lockdown in Los Angeles as we are in the UK? Yeah, we're still um, we're still sort of in our first phase. Um, we've never quite come out of it, but... You know, same same as you. We're just we're just getting on with it. We've been lucky to have really good weather for a lot of it, so being outside is great. Strange for the UK, but we've had good weather. Although I'm down in Ramsgate, which uh, in Kent we apparently have a bit of a microclimate. So yes, we've been very lucky too. And um, but I was wondering, I mean, as a composer, you're used to working in a sort of isolation at most times. So have you been able to work on projects you've always wanted to work on, or just been ticking along almost as normal? You're you're right. We're so uh, we're so isolated normally as composers, but even I'm feeling it now. I just you know I'm desperate desperate to get out and 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 see someone. But um, we're we're really lucky to be able to do this sort of thing long distance over the internet. So like a suitable boy, which I think we'll talk about later. You know, was all done remotely around the world. We were recording in India and the UK and America and doing it all over the internet. So I think. I think that's one of the silver linings of this crazy situation is forcing everyone to make that technology work for us. Yeah, we've, we've definitely had to adapt very, very quickly. Well, uh, we opened today's show with a very dramatic piece by Jerry Goldsmith from his score to Planet of the Apes. And I'm going to play a bit more because I didn't do it justice. And it's a really fantastically dramatical piece. So let's hear a bit more. <laughs> Thank you. 
cut it off there at that sort of cliffhanger moment. So is Jerry Goldsmith one of your all-time favourite uh, film composers? He is. I mean, I, he, he's, he's a classic. You know, you have to put him among the, um, you know, the all-time greats. But this isn't um, a tune that you might go uh, whistling down the street <laughs> or playing at bedtime. Um, it's something that I remember very strongly when I was quite small, when I was about 10 years old, I think I saw this film for the first time. And the film terrified me. But honestly, what really terrified me was the music. And it's so iconic. It's stuck in my head ever since. <laughs> and there's something about it, which is just like, the, there's no other film that sounds like this. The way he mixes sounds like the slashing of that sound um, to make the sound of the waves um, and the electric guitar and then the orchestra. It's just so weird and unsettling that it stayed at the back of my mind. And it's funny listening to it now, actually. Um, I remember doing Last King of Scotland, a film I did many years ago with Kevin MacDonald. And there's a sound that I'm hearing there in Planet of the Apes, which is this sort of rubbed conga sound that goes, ooh. Oh, is that what it is? I was going to ask you what it was. Yeah, that's. I think it's someone with a slightly like wet finger going around the edge of a conga, and it makes this sort of um, yeah strange vocal noise. And and actually, I I used that in Last King of Scotland. And now that I think of it, I'm sure it was somewhere in the back of my mind. This residual memory of this <laughs> this strange sound, probably maybe from Planet of the Apes, but. The other reason I wanted to choose it for you is because now that I live um, here in L.A., close to the beach, I, I, we, I take my daughter down to the beach one day and we went down to, um, there's a, a long beach, you probably know it, at Doom Point at, at Malibu and you can, climb over the, you can climb over these rocks and get to this little secluded beach and that is where they filmed this scene that the music came from. And we did it one day and I climbed over those rocks and all of a sudden I was like, oh my goodness, I'm in Planet of the Apes. <laughs> it was the most uncanny sort of feeling. And then all of a sudden I heard the sound of the sea, the waves coming in, which is all you hear at the end of this film. It's very creepy. And I could suddenly hear that sound of the tam-tam being scraped in Jerry Goldsmith's score, that sort of whoosh sound. And it sounded exactly like the waves in the sea and it was a really uncanny Feelings, so that's why I wanted to play that to you today to remind me of all of those things. Well, what does a tam tam look like? A tam tam is a big gong, it's a huge gong. They come in different sizes, but as well as being um, the big bronzed man on the um, you know the beginning of uh, many a film that you might have seen in the 1970s, um, you know, people people hit it with a great big thing, but of course, you can you can you can scratch it with metal. We actually did, um, I worked on Tim Burton's film of um, Sweeney Todd um, some years ago, the Stephen Sondheim um, show, which was an amazing experience. And um, Tim wanted me to make, um, I did lots of arrangements and did some extra score and things like that. And I was conducting the orchestra and Tim said he wanted to find some really hideous sound, um, like sort of like nails down a blackboard. And so we got someone to scratch down a tam-tam and it's the most, disgusting <laughs> sound it has to be said but sort of if you want to put someone on edge so it's it's an amazing instrument to do all these different things with and um i was actually looking at uh, jerry goldsmith's you know long list of credits and found a quote by him and i thought i wanted to share this with you 
He said, the function of a score is to enlarge the scope of the film. I try for emotional penetration, not for complementing the action. For me, it's a statement. I can't describe how I arrive at the decision to make a statement. I just feel it and react to it. And I wondered, it, it sort of, when I, when I read it, it reminded me of something I read on the ASCAP website that you had talked about when you talk about your love of improvisation and how you sort of catch a wave. And, I, I, and then it made me think, well, if you love improvisation, does improvisation play any part in your preparation for film music? I think it does. I'm sure a lot of composers would say, in a way, they're just sort of watching the picture and trying to respond and sit down and play the piano as they're... But the trick then is to try and capture that moment because, you know, you can have that feeling in a moment and it suddenly comes to you. But then you've got to keep that thought going for several hours or days or weeks as you develop the ideas. And that's where the craft of composing crosses over with improvisation, where it goes from that initial thing into then working out the idea. So there's a blurred line between the two, but I I do love improvising and I've... um, I did a record a few years ago called Face to Face, which we might talk about, which was totally improvised. And it was it was a very interesting experience, first of all, just to open yourself to the moment and have nothing prepared at all. But it made me really reflect on what that difference between improvising and composing is, actually. And that's where I've come to that conclusion. You know, the improvising bit is catching the moment and the composing bit is then grabbing hold of that a bit like trying to catch a rainbow (laughs) you know it's a hard thing to do but you've got to sort of grab it with both arms and try and wrestle it to the ground and then shape it into something over a longer period of time i love that analogy um now let's listen to one of my all-time favorite songs uh, both sides now by jenny mitchell rose and flows of angel hair And ice cream castles in the air And feather canyons everywhere Looked at clouds that way But now they only block the sun and what is it about this version of it that you they like? Rain and they it snow is just amazing, isn't it? I mean, I love the original version as well, but this one... Well, I'll tell you a story so about it. Um, I, I can't remember how old this record is now. Um, it must be 12 or 15 years old, but um, I, I was quite young and I was at Air Studios recording some film or... I can't even remember what it was, to be honest, and it was late at night, as it often is, as you know, in studios. And I was sitting there with the engineer and... Um, I remember saying to him, you know, what's the best thing that you've had in here at the moment? You know, what's been the most inspiring thing that's happened recently? And he said, ah, wait a minute. And he went off into the machine room and he brought out these two huge big tapes. They were, they still used that big two inch Sony digital tape at the time. And he said, we recorded this last week. Have a listen to this. And he put the master tape of this record on the machine and played it to me on the mixing board. It was unmixed. It was just literally, they'd just finished recording it like the day before or something. And I just sat there and my jaw just dropped. I was like, what is this? This is incredible. That string arrangement. And then when Joni's voice comes in, it's just, and then you get like Wayne Shorter playing the the, the soprano saxophone. And it's like, oh my goodness. Um, and it just, it totally stuck with me. And the, the funny thing is that I loved it so much that when they went to do the follow-up record, 
I, I sort of blagged my way, way into eggs. I knew they were going to do it, and I worked there a lot, and I knew a lot of people. So I actually sat in on the second record they did in the hall, and I, I met Joni very briefly, and I, you know, I didn't want to, didn't want to intrude, but um, and I met her producer, uh, Larry. And the funny thing is that years later, we're living here in LA, and we end up totally, totally by random. I mean couldn't be more random, ending up being extremely good friends with uh, Larry Klein, who produced this record, who was married to Joni at the time. Um, we're now just really good friend, friends through some, you know, a, just a different personal connection. And so I feel like my life has gone full circle around this record. I love it so much. And I'm so, you know, so happy to be um, able to sort of look at it with, with hindsight. And every time I listen to it over the years, it sort of sounds the same but different it has different significance to me so it's it's just beautiful Joni is also to me synonymous with Laurel Canyon in Los Angeles and so she she it's just again that, that's the beauty of music it takes you to a place and a time and and you can keep revisiting it every time you hear it because I, I met her uh, and also Larry Klein when I was still at, at KCRW that was one of my highlights from LA well the next track I, I we're just going to go into it I'm not going to give it any introduction because it's quite a track I would be complex I would be cool they'd say I played the field before I found someone to commit to and that would be okay for me to do that is the first time Taylor Swift has been played on composers on film <laughs> I love it so why do you love this track are you a, a closet Swifty I, more than a closet. How could you not love Taylor Swift? I, I think she's a total hero. I just, I totally love her. I think she's fantastic. Um, this may have something to do with me having, a, you know, a young daughter who loves Taylor Swift. Also, I mean, I don't want to be name dropping. I think I am name dropping in this show, but it's sort of interesting. I, I did meet her a few years ago, quite a few years ago, and um, it really, uh, it sort of coloured how I, I think about her because she was so sweet and genuinely a just delightful person to talk to. But the thing that I just love about her is that she's been in the music business for almost as long as me, but she's so young. You know, she started so young and she's had this staying power and she's grown into some. She's outgrown what people expected her to be. And the, just like with this song, it's so witty. It's so catchy. You cannot help but love it. But it's got a fantastic message. You know, this sounds horribly, terribly woke, I guess. But, you know, it really is true. It's it's especially in the music business. You know, it's still a man's world, even though I have a lot of young female composers coming to me asking for advice and so many more now. But, you know, I'm still aware of that sort of, you know, the, that disparity and I love the way that Taylor makes that point, but she doesn't do it in a heavy-handed way. She does it in a way that you still want to sing and dance to it. I just think it's so clever. So, so I think she's a total hero. I watched the uh, the video to go with this, which is also brilliant. And apparently, it's her directorial debut as a, a video director. Yeah, she's just ridiculously talented. But you know that that ability. I was, I've always looked to film composers for that ability to have long careers and grow because in, you know in pop, it's quite often that you know you get to a certain point where you've almost burnt out or, you know, people write their best songs in their early years sort of thing. Whereas I always like to think film composers grow over a long period of time. And you look at someone like Jerry Goldsmith, who was still writing, you know, in his 70s and doing amazingly different stuff. Um, but, you know, with, with Taylor Swift, she's still young, but she has had this incredible staying power and this growth. And even her last album, 
folklore is so different to everything. It's like I've got real hope that she'll carry on doing really good stuff. But ultimately, look, it's just a great pop song. <laughs> exactly. No, it's been my my earworm for the last week, thanks to you. So <laughs> now for something completely different, we're going to hear from Thomas Newman's score to 1917. Did you love that film and love the score or one or other? I, I did. I don't know. Um, I, I have people who tell me that um, I shouldn't because um, it was it was sort of um, not as good as everyone made it out to be. But I thought it was great. Uh, and I'm, I'm a big Thomas Newman fan. And I um, I just thought the music was it, it sort of in, in his typical way added an unexpected emotional element at moments when you weren't quite expecting it. And um, also, I just... Uh, I haven't been to the UK for a long time because of the pandemic. And so I know this was recorded at Abbey Road and it just makes, you know, I can imagine being there in the room and hearing this. I know, I know a lot of the players there. I know, I think I know who played the solo cello in this piece. And so it just takes me back to being in the UK as well. So um, that's one of the reasons why I, I like it. beautiful such a sort of plaintive voice-like quality to that playing it's so simple and that's what I think Tom Newman does best I think he'd be the first to sort of say that's what he's sort of known for is just saying something in a it's so stripped back it just does exactly what it needs to do which as a composer I know is probably the hardest thing to do there's nowhere to hide you know it's in a simple line it's either it either works or it doesn't and um yeah, and for me, the contours of it, it just, it's already really nice at the beginning. And then there's just one shift or one thing that it does. It just takes you a little bit beyond. And it, yeah, it's really, really touching. I thought it worked brilliantly in the film. And now a, a Nina Simone classic, I Wish I Knew How to Be Free, which I, for years, um, growing up in the UK, as I did, uh, was watching the Barry Norman film show. And they had an instrumental version of this track playing as its theme tune. So it was, it was some time later before I heard Nina of course now I can't think of it except for being Nina Simone's track and I I was surprised she hadn't written it actually yeah and that's there are two reasons why I wanted to choose it I mean one was the Barry Norman connection because of course we all grew up watching Barry Norman um, whenever it was in the 70s or the 80s I forget and that totally iconic music and just like you I knew that before I knew the, the Nina Simone so that reminds me of happy happy days and then this links into the ronnie scott film that i did recently because there's this incredible sequence of nina singing a, a different song but it just gives you a feeling when you watch her in ronnie scott's what an unbelievably huge singing personality she had she like sort of dominates the room it's really it's sort of extraordinary and it, it comes across on this track as well you know it's her, her voice is just so arresting Oh, 
my apologies for fading out, but time is tight on, on our show. But I, I do love it. And I think another thing I didn't realise about Nina Simone for some time, what an extraordinary pianist she was. I, I didn't know about a whole classical playing career. Yeah, no, totally. And it's uh, one of those techniques that just sort of looks effortless. And it's actually really hard to sing and play at the same time. And, you know, some people just, they, they've mastered that, but it's not an easy thing to do but Nina Simone I mean incredible and she she really in this film Ronnie's it's a really um when you get to see it you'll find it's a very emotional moment because the film is it's as much about the club as it is about Ronnie Scott himself who who I knew nothing about and he suffered from depression quite badly and it was something that people couldn't talk about in those you know those days it just wasn't you know, it wasn't something you talked about and so he really suffered in silence and there's a really touching section in the film where they're talking about him having to struggle with his depression and they show a clip of Nina Simone singing and she also suffered I think you know from depression quite you know really um, badly across her life um, and her performance is just so it's so intense and so moving it really it it describes everything that they're trying to say about Ronnie's state of mind, you know, better than describing it in words. It's really strong. Yeah, no, amazing. I mean, I think you're getting an idea. I'm a bit of an eclectic <laughs> here. And, you know, it was really hard choosing, you know, whittling down what to play you. I had all my Marla symphonies lined up and my Bach cantatas and heaven knows what. But I'm, I'm so lucky being a film composer to do different things all the time and this is one of the things I love about being a film composer and so that's probably you're probably picking up on all these wildly different things I'm throwing at you here but that's uh, that's just how I am I'm just I, I you know you should see my iTunes library it's a mess well I think we're, we're, we're peas in a pod because obviously you know from my time at doing Morning Becomes Eclectic the 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 clue is in the name isn't it like I too I think the only thing I probably wouldn't play ever is sort of thrash metal or any sort of misogynistic rap or whatever but other than that everything's up, up for grabs well let's get on to the next piece which is one that you've done with Regina Spector and uh, it's the face-to-face project that you referred to earlier on in the show Balloon Girl As I said, Face to Face was a project where I wanted to explore what it means to improvise and what the difference between that and composing is. So I thought I'd set myself a challenge of doing an entire record, collaborating with individual pe- people face to face, which is where the name comes from. And we would um, we would pick an interesting space, go into, so not necessarily a studio, go into somewhere just interesting that was a bit inspiring with nothing prepared and just do something and then I would have to make something out of it. So a bit like a sort of, uh, what was that program where you have to cook a meal with just a load of cans in the cupboard that you you don't know what they were going to be. But it's sort of like the musical equivalent. But it was a little bit more of an extreme challenge because we went out to Africa, we did tracks there, we went to, um, we did one track in the Tate Modern with Matthew Barley in the Turbine Hall at night, which was amazing. And this one with Regina, I picked people who I just felt were really interesting, free spirits and who would be inspiring. And I'd heard some of her records at the time and I really liked Regina. And I twisted her arm into giving it a go and she was nervous about it, understandably, because there was some guy saying, um, I want you to turn up in, a, in an empty factory on the east side of... Uh, <laughs> 
of the Bronx and I'm just going to bring in some instruments and we're just going to do something. She's like, okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, all credit to her. She, she did. And we, um, we found this, um, it was an empty, like one of those big warehouse loft spaces you get in New York. And I hired a uh, Celeste, which you hear there, and a little pump organ, like a, a, literally an old um, portable organ that you pump with your foot. And we had nothing prepared. It was a sweltering hot day in New York. You know what it's like in the summer there. It's just insane. And it was one of those uh, lofts that had all glass in the roof as well. So <laughs> I hadn't accounted for the fact that it was literally like an oven. It was like a furnace in there. It was it, You could barely breathe. And... Um, I brought in a few pictures to look at. And one of the pictures I thought was interesting was Banksy's picture of girl with a balloon. Um, but I'm a you know I'm a big Banksy fan, and I, I was showing it to Regina, and, and we were talking about it. And then we I don't know we just started playing this thing, and um, it was so hot she um, she started humming this this thing, and you can hear her sort of almost gasping for breath. Um, you know where she does it but then she sort of started making it into this blowing noise like blowing up a balloon and it was a sort of a magical moment where this bit of music just seemed to emerge almost from nowhere um, and at the end of the day I wasn't quite sure what we had and I went back and listened to the tape and I was like wow that's really sort of sort of interesting and that's how it ended up on 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 the record and it's been used on you know on, on tv adverts and bits and pieces ever since but um that's my exploration of, you know, the difference between composing and improvising. And what were you recording it on in, in the, this warehouse? So my um, my friend Peter Henson, who's, uh, I don't know if you know Peter, he was at Air um, many years ago when it was in Oxford Circus, and he's a very experienced engineer. So he had a mobile, he had a mobile rig, and he followed me around the world from Uganda to New York to London, <laughs> just very gamely set up, you know, in a corner with his headphones and we recorded multi-track you know she i think regina played the i think she played the celeste i think i played the pump organ and then she sang and then we overdubbed some there was an old piano that was out of tune and we overdubbed it there yeah just trying to capture a, a, a you know a magic moment capture a spark of a moment and uh, the next piece is transcendence from the ronnie's documentary that we talked a little bit about earlier so let's listen to this a beautiful track Alex and, and who's the soloist on that yeah she's amazing it's Trish Klaus who's uh, um, yeah she's a young British uh, sax player and um, we recorded that in London um, and it, it was a moment of transcendence she um, brought something really special to it there's a part in the film where they're talking about how Ronnie's over, overcame his depression you know by playing and transcending the sadness in his life thing and I think even if you don't have depression i'm lucky i've never you know suffered from anything like that but i i still understand that feeling of music taking you off into another into another place and being able to put aside whatever's going on in your life and enter this other world and i'm sure i'm sure you know everyone listening has if you've got an interesting mu music you know that's that's what it can do for you so and uh, you know funnily enough i actually wrote this piece 
uh, it was a year ago now when we were having some of the wildfires here in LA and we I had to move out of the studio we had to move out of the house for a few days just out of caution um, and I had to I was writing this in someone's back house in the back of the garden in the middle of the night just with the chaotic you know set up but it was sort of interesting how it it was a very concerning time you know the fires were raging and there was a lot of uncertainty but it I did escape into my transcendent little bubble and just have to be forced to go somewhere else mentally and um, I was very grateful for it because it got me through that experience and so it's a very calm piece of music that was written at quite a chaotic nervous time (laughs) you know music can really help with those things. You've painted a very, very dramatic picture of that. And and I I was wondering, bearing in mind, it's about Ronnie Scott's and the club and all these incredible performers. For you, as the composer for this documentary, were you just having to kind of weave those together or were you topping and tailing or how much score did you have to provide? I think there is quite a lot of score, but um, the director, Ollie Murray, he didn't want me to really write a jazz score, that what you heard there is, you know, it sort of hints at the jazz thing, but it's somewhere in between, because there's all these incredible jazz performances in the film, so the music really tries to underscore the the personal stories, and it does have to weave in and out of a lot of different performances and try and find that sort of, that thread that goes through without interfering with the performances so quite a quite a hard thing to do but interesting because it meant I had to reach into some unusual areas so I would write I wrote a theme a jazz theme for Ronnie and and the director felt like it was too too jazz like he didn't want it to interfere so what I did is I I recorded it on the piano then I chopped it up I sampled it and I would stretch out like one chord I would stretch out that one chord for like two minutes and then resample those chords and make synth patches out of it so it no longer sounded almost like a piano but I would make sort of textural layers out of it so a bit like putting music under a microscope and trying to find the beauty in the tiny tiny details of it rather than having more of a traditional tune. Mm, Well, I can't wait to uh, both hear your score to it and see the documentary because I did go to Ronnie Scott's way back in the day when he was still around and I just remember him sort of shuffling onto the stage and introducing. He was always very laconic and funny, but as you said yourself, I had no idea of he he was battling depression. I was just so grateful for this, you know, club with this extraordinary lineup of artists. So, um, so yes, looking forward to that. Um, But now we're going to hear something that is currently available to us in the UK on the BBC iPlayer, um, A Suitable Boy from the Vikram Seth novel. And you'd worked with uh, Mira Nair before, hadn't you? Yes, I did a film called Queen of Katwe uh, with Mira um, a few years ago, which is a really lovely Disney film, a true story about a chess champion in, in Central Africa who um, she was unable to read or write, but turned out had this incredible, wonderful ability to play chess and, and then did go to school, learn to read and write and became a, a chess champion. And so I'd worked with Mira on that, and so I was really delighted to do Suitable Boy because I'm a, I'm a, you know, big fan of the book of Vikrams and, and of Indian music. And um, Mira teamed me up with Anushka Shankar, the incredible sitar player, and we had such fun, the three of us, or I should say, we had such fun for one day <laughs> in the studio before the pandemic. Um, scattered us all over the globe. We 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 got into the studio for one day where um, Anushka and I did a theme for Lata, the main character, and then after that, for the for the next five months, we were all remote. Uh, Mira was in New York. I was here in LA. Anushka was in London. Our editor was in um, 
Australia actually and we had um, all the musicians we were using scattered around India in Delhi and Mumbai and we were recording everyone remotely the strings we ended up doing in Budapest and we had to do the entire series like that which was a huge logistical challenge but hopefully you don't you know you don't hear it and it was uh, you know a different ex- <laughs> a different experience but a lot of fun and in terms of you know working with Anushka and the style of music because obviously the style of Indian music is quite different to Western music and then you have to make it you know serve the film in terms of a a score. Yeah well I've done quite a lot of films where I've had to try and bridge two different worlds like Last King of Scotland or Mandela where you're you're the film is in Africa and it needs to have you know a sense of the place but also work as film music and same with Suitable Boy you know Mira's very um She's very, she loves music. She absolutely adores music. And she was very keen to make it as authentic as possible. I mean, having someone like Anushka, who's got that incredible, um, you know, she she comes from the source. You know, her, her dad, <laughs> Ravi Shankar, taught her the sitar from day one. So she knows, she knows it like no one else, really. But she's also got this very interesting crossover career where she's worked with lots of different people in pop and classical world so even though we didn't know each other um, we're both used to collaborating quite a lot so we felt our way with it but to be honest uh, almost the first idea she sent me a little idea that she recorded on her phone actually just like a couple of snippet of a couple of bars and then I took that and I spent a day or two sort of developing and then writing another idea and turning it into something else and putting some orchestra and and we did it a lot a lot like that i would i would write something send it to her she would send me something on her phone and then i would think about it and ping pong things backwards and forwards and i think what we're going to hear now is literally what we worked on for one day together in the studio and mira came in at tea time like four o'clock very indian tea time she came for a cup of tea and a, and a biscuit and um we played it to her and i i just put it up to picture because we, we were working very very fast at that point um, and I found a scene w- with her and Kabir on the floating island. And I we didn't actually write this piece to picture, but I put it up to picture and made some adjustments, did a couple of edits, you know, in, in, in a few minutes. And Mira came in the door and we held our breath and <laughs> hit play and played it to her. And I think she loved it. And that's exactly how it ended up on, on the film and became the backbone of a lot of the score in a way. Latter's theme from A Suitable Boy. It's a wonderful six-part series. There was a lot of music in there. You must have been very busy. There was a lot of music, yes. Silver Screen had just released a double album and we we struggled to fit it into a double, actually. Um, But, you know, that's a nice problem to have. It is an epic story. Um, There's so many different characters. I think it needed a lot of music to um, sort of follow all those different um, stories. But Latter's story is, is, is... is the thread that goes through the middle and she she's really played wonderfully by Tanya um in the series she's just so 
she's so watchable and Mira wanted to get that sense of someone who is very young and very bright slightly you know lively and cheeky but also a bit shy um you know and the way that Anushka plays that opening it's so delicate it's so subtle it's got that sort of that that slightly unformed that slightly naive thing about it and then it picks up and it, it finds its confidence when the tabla comes in and it has that like yes I know where I'm going in life and so we were trying to find both sides of her character no, oh, you did. You did a fantastic job. And as you said, it's currently available digitally on Silver Screen Records and the CD will be out November 27th and the vinyl early 2021. Um, but moving on to uh, Hope Gap, the film that was shot not far from where I am, actually. It's up in Seaford along the, the English coast. They've got the same chalky white cliffs as we do. And um, the track is called I Have Been Here Before. Shall we play it and then have a chat? Yeah. Playing, Alex? No, I wish it were. It's uh, it's Tom Poster playing in in the studio. Um, yeah, he plays just beautifully. So tell us about Hope Gap. It's a, a, no, quite an extraordinary cast. Uh, or t- it's a three-hander, really. It's a Josh O'Connor, but with the mighty Annette Benning and Bill Nye. Yes, the mighty. She is just great, isn't she? And I, I spent a day on the cliffs there in Seaford, sitting next to Annette, watching her. Um, just sort of uh, doing her thing. Um, it's so funny watching an actor um, because she'd sit there on a deck chair, you know, waiting, you know, for an hour or two hours. She'd be reading her phone or reading the newspaper, and then she'd get up and just walk out and suddenly snap into being someone else. It's sort of <laughs> amazing to to watch that because I don't really watch actors all that much, but it's funny how they can sort of turn it on and off. Um, and it's, um, as you say, it's quite a it's it's a very intimate piece. It's it's. It's about um, their marriage breaking down after 29 years. And Bill Nye is, um, so in a way, what you would expect from Bill Nye, except that he's he's even more, it's, it's even more nuanced. It's very, very subtle. And he's the one who walks out on her and she just can't believe it. And she, she's in total denial. Um, and the son, played by Josh O'Connor, tries to sort of find some, you know, rapprochement between them and... So it's a very theatrical piece. Bill, who wrote it, is an amazing William Nicholson, uh, Bill Nicholson. He's he's a fantastic writer. He actually, he wrote that film Shadowlands. I don't know, do you remember that? Yes, I do, yeah. And I remember seeing that when I was um, in my early 20s and just, I just love that film. It's so emotional and moving. And so Bill wrote that and he also wrote Gladiator, I think, and, and lots of other big films. So he's a brilliant writer and this is one of the first films he's directed, so he wrote and directed this and so he said to me he's the only thing he really said was i want a tune can you give me a tune please so there you go <laughs> that's the tune that we just heard and it's uh, you know the film is quite light on music because it's very it's quite wordy and it's very much an actor's piece but the music when it comes it's nice because there's space for it um generally bill wanted the music to play without interfering with the words so you get music sections and then talking sections so the music has space to breathe in the film which is quite nice mm, and, it, and it breathes against this you know dramatic setting of, of the white cliffs and the, and the beautiful blue skies that we do get in england you don't just get them in california 
No, it's true. I mean, it was uh, uh, absolutely that day is etched on my mind because it was it was the sky was blue, the the sea was blue, the cliffs were white, and the grass was green, and and it really was it. Yeah, it was stunning, stunning. And uh, and now for something completely different. We took uh, we're going to listen to "Life Returns to the Watering Hole" from the Elephant Queen. Show's only an hour long, and we're getting close to that now. But uh, it's a beautiful piece, and I wondered, had you worked on many wildlife documentaries before? I, not that many. I did a film called Earth, One Amazing Day for the BBC, um, which was um, it was a theatrical, it was a cinema version of Planet Earth 2, actually, which probably played more internationally than in, in the UK. Um, but that was, that was a great opportunity to just write lots and lots of nature music. I've done one or two others, but The Elephant Queen is really special. It, it plays on Apple TV+, Plus, so um, if you have that, you'll be able to see it any time. But it's really special because it um, it sort of transcends being a nature film, and it really turns out to be a film about a family of elephants, um, and you follow this family through a year cycle where there's a drought and they have to go off and find water and it you know there's tragedy and there's heartbreak and there's joy and there's tears and all those things but it it, by the end of the film you almost I forget that you're watching elephants you really you sort of get to understand a little bit about that family dynamic so that's what I was trying to do is really score it a bit like a that sort of drama and we were we were so lucky we we actually got to go out to Kenya and stay with the filmmakers where they shot it in in Kenya and actually stay in a tent in the middle of nowhere and have wild elephants, you know, roaming about whilst we ate breakfast. (laughs) It's just a a really just stunning experience. And at night time, you know, hearing a a roar of a lion close and we had no fence around us at all, just just the campfire. And, And you sort of feel your sense of where you are in, you know, in the pecking order of the world as a very humbling and a very primordial experience. It felt very natural in a weird way, but so amazing experience. But um, yeah, I can really recommend it. It's a, it's a, it's a lovely film. Well, I'd love to see the film. I'd also like to, you know, step in your shoes sometimes. That's such an extraordinary experience. But it's, um, you've actually been on location for a number of the projects you've worked on because the last King of Scotland, I believe, you went on location for that, and then the Mandela film. And is that something that you? always endeavour to do on any project that you work on if you think it's going to you know work in your favour or how does it come about because often you know you hear of composers having the opposite thing where they're only brought onto the production you know three or four weeks before the dub and they have to rush to get it done. I know and I'm not a natural traveller I mean honestly I don't I don't really like traveling all that much. <laughs> uh, but I've spent my whole life traveling and I'm terribly lucky to have done it I'm you know grateful every time it's happened but it's it's not I'm not one of those people who've got itchy feet who just want to go around the whole place but um people seem to like throwing me into these situations which has turned out to be great yes yeah, so when we did Mandela I went to South Africa and we worked with singers and choirs and percussionists and um you know as as you sort of should to try and get a sense of that that real authentic flavor of the place um and this track is uh, is what came out of one of those experiences 
Um, did you want to go to the Sons of Crusa now, or are we going to play the I'm Sadie cue before we we went? And I was going to sort of wrap up the show with the Sons of Crusa. Well, it's it's up to you. Why don't we play a little bit of Sadie if we've got time? But yes, let, let's do, yeah, let's do um, I'm Sadie, which comes from a film. Or no, it's a TV series, isn't it? Eleven twenty two sixty three, and it stars uh, James Franco and uh, based on the Stephen King novel, I believe. Yeah, it is, and it's I. I'm not a big horror fan, but um, I read the Stephen King novel because I, I, well, I was doing the show and I knew it wasn't really a horror thing. It's a time travel um, series. It's like a 10 hour. It was on Hulu over here in the States. I think it was on, uh, I think it was on Sky in the UK. It's, it's actually tremendously good. It's really entertaining. It's a time travel story set in the 60s about what would happen if one guy could go back and stop the assassination of JFK so find out who did it and time stop it but as well as being a thriller and that time travel thing it turns out to be of course he goes back in time and meets this wonderful person who he falls in love with and he's got this terrible dilemma um you know does he tell her the truth about why he's there and uh, you know or does he live this life of mystery and so Sadie needed a theme, and I th- I think this might be me playing the piano on this one. Actually, I've got a feeling um, it, it it is. So let's give it a whirl. Alex, it's been a delight talking to you, but we are running out of time. So I want to finish up by hearing a little bit about your work on Mandela Long Walk to Freedom, because, again, you know, we've used the word epic a few times in the show, but it's it was a huge film because it, it covered his extraordinary life. So you're going through various decades with, with different music in each decade. Yeah, absolutely. And he lived this incredibly long life and he, he lived just long enough to see some of the film as well. Um, in fact, he's Idris Elba plays him in the film absolutely brilliantly, I think. And I remember Justin saying that he played um, a clip to, um, to to Mandela of Idris walking on the cliffs um, at the end of the film, and Mandela said, "Is that me?" Because mm-hmm. <laughs> he 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 just looked like his body language. He's like, "Did did you film me at some point?" Um, Idris really embodied his his. I don't know the way he walks and the way he talks so brilliantly. I thought. Um, but musically, um, it was a huge, huge undertaking. And we did go to South Africa and recorded lots of vocals and percussion and choirs. Um, and I think this is a, you're going to hear a bit from the, the very beginning when we um, just introduced to the young Madiba, the young Nelson Mandela as a, as a boy growing up um, in the countryside. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And I hope it's not too long before I get to see you either in the States or over here in the UK. I hope so, Gemma. It's been great. Thanks. Thanks.